Everybody loves a good mystery. I think everybody does. Show of hands. Everybody loves a good mystery. There's tons of them out there. The whodunits of Hollywood and, and books are, are exciting and they're fun and, and I enjoy them too. Um, they're most often fiction, but also ripped from the headlines of newspapers. Uh, fiction, who killed J.R.? Does anybody know who killed J.R.? <laughs> I looked it up. But I'm not going to let you know because it's a mystery. What's the identity of Jack the Ripper? Jack the Ripper was a real person, real murderer that unsolved mystery. What day was Jesus born? Kind of have an idea, but we don't know exactly. We celebrate one that we've chosen to pick. So we love great mysteries. But, but do we really love the mystery? Is our desire to have our curiosity satisfied bigger than the fun of the suspense? If they leave it as a mystery, is that really exciting? Or getting to hear that mystery reveal what, what's really going on, is that the better part? <clears throat> I enjoy a good mystery, and I'm in the camp of the, the former. I, I want to know that what the answer is. Um, as long as the mystery is revealed in a good way. And I'll, I'll take uh, Stephen King as an example. To me, he's not a great writer. Sorry if you're a Stephen King fan. But he will end stories just, oh yeah, and this is the answer. Without any part of what led up to it really being directed toward the solution. So that is very dissatisfying me. I wonder, why did I invest all that time in the story if you're just going to pull something randomly out of the air and tell me at the end and call it the answer to the mystery? But if you do it right, then I'm thrilled. If you gave me a chance to sort of figure it out, or maybe I didn't figure it out, but when you give me that answer of what was going on, and I could see everything that pointed to it and say, yeah, I, I should have figured it out. The clues were there. I, I'm going to try harder to, to solve these things, or I, I got a real good idea of where this is going. And then you surprised me with an ending that was based on the clues. That's the best of all the mysteries to me. But again, if you just toss out something that's unrelated, I'm disappointed. If I have a legitimate backstory that aligns with the mystery, then I trust the revelation. And that's what's going on here. There's a mystery that Paul is going to reveal, and he's also going to give you enough of a backstory to where you say, yeah, that, that does make sense. My point is, how a mystery is revealed, maybe not as important, but really important toward the revelation. So, in our text today, is Paul giving us more background to the revelation than he is spending, on, spending time on the mystery itself? Paul always has a focus on Christ and his glory. Throughout the Bible, that's what Paul is doing. Yet in this, especially the first six verses, but really the whole 13 set, he spends a lot of time on himself. Verse 1, Paul says that he is a prisoner. Paul tells us that he was given the stewardship of God's grace in verse 2. In 3, Paul informs us he is who the mystery was made known to. Verse 4, Paul has the insight 
as to the mystery. Verse 7, Paul is the steward of the gospel. Verse 13, Paul is the one suffering. Had Paul suddenly become a megalomaniac? Or egomaniac, I guess? And the answer is no. Uh, verse 5, Paul ad admission that the mystery is revealed to um, the holy apostles, not just him, and prophets. In verse 8, Paul is referring to himself as the least of all the saints. So there's humility there too. So why does Paul, inspired by God, get so much attention? Could it be the revelation of the mystery is being given that legitimate backstory such that we can trust it? Or the Ephesians can trust it? Well, let's turn to the passage and find out. I'll read it. It's not long, so if, if you're able, maybe you can stand in reference, reverence to the, to the word. And if you're not able to stand, that's fine too. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, and as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God, who created all things. So that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Lord Father, we are trusting of your word, of its infinite wisdom, and Lord, we pray that we would learn from this passage what the various characteristics of Paul that brings light to the passage mean to us. Lord, we pray that we as an audience would be able to hear what your word is saying, that I, trying to deliver the message to you, would not use my own thoughts, but those presented to me by the Lord through his spirit and through his word. Lord, I humbly stand before you and these people admitting that what I know is nothing compared to what the Spirit reveals. And Lord, I pray that that Spirit would reveal it to you, or to our audience, and to me, all of us, for the glory of you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Go ahead and make yourself comfortable. I usually bring water up as an insurance policy. If it's here, I don't need it. But I think you all make me very nervous and my mouth gets dry. <laughs> <laughs> I 
the summary of this uh, section or, or this passage that we're going to be looking at, 1 through 13, I think it would be summed up to uh, saying that God's glory is on display in the faith, character, and behavior of his inclusive church. The character and behavior of his church and the fact that it's inclusive to include Gentiles specifically. So chicken or the egg? Are we asked to trust the author and therefore trust the mystery revealed? Or are we to trust the revelation and therefore trust the author? I think it's trusting both at once. A prophet must be accurate on prophecies all the time. All the prophets of the Old Testament were accurate all the time or were illegitimate. So it's all the time. Paul's character, and I will include Paul amongst the prophets, Paul's character and believability is dependent on his motives being honest and his words accurate to what is being revealed to him. He must be legitimate. And let me jump straight to the revelation of the mystery, since that's what the title is. It's verse 6. Again, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The sentence is smack dab in the middle of the passage. The words before the revelation are Paul identifying his authority to reveal it. And the words after the revelation point to the authority to present the mentioned gospel of Christ to the Gentiles. So before is his legitimacy, before is his authority, or after is his authority. So let's look at the passage from those two perspectives. His legitimacy to reveal the mystery and his authority to present the gospel. Both, take note, are heavenly appointed. Just as we studied the character of the four women of the Bible in July, Rick Oliver coming and each person that he chose, he showed us the character of the person, the godly nature of them so that we might emulate that, so that we read deeper into the purpose than the story itself. So I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to look at the character of Paul as he reveals what he does. And hopefully to the same end, that how we heed his examples will be for that same glory of God. So let's, let's dig in. Uh, verses 1 through 5, Paul's legitimacy. Uh, Paul is a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. Romans probably think they're the ones who imprisoned Paul. And there's your first characteristic of Paul to take note of. What he does, he does for Christ. What he is, he is for Christ. He is led by Christ in everything that he does. And not just this passage, everything that you read about Paul you read about him doing for Christ. Maybe the introduction of how he was really persecuting the church, he didn't think he was doing it for Christ. But even the fact that he had this persecutor of Christ come to be 
one of the great orators of Christ is glorifying to God. So he, he in some sense, even did that to the glory of God or for Christ. Naysayers would suggest that Paul is only referring to the charge of his imprisonment. You know, he's charged for bringing a Jew into the synagogue, or bringing a Gentile into the synagogue, and, and blasphemy too as well. Um, and the Romans put him under imprisonment because he basically asked him to. He asserted to his authority as a Roman not to be uh, penalized by these Jews. So he's being protected from the Jews by the Romans, and the strange method of protecting in that day is, well, we'll just put you in prison where nobody's going to get to you. Um, so some could think that he was a prisoner of the Romans, sure, and the charge and for you Gentiles was because he was um, preaching to Gentiles when Jews wouldn't accept that. Uh, but the words prisoner of Christ, and they ring very familiar to, to being a bondservant, being a slave to Christ. Uh, we can wait for chapter 6 of this very Ephesians uh, letter because it does go into the depth of what a prisoner of Christ is. And, and I'll let whoever's preaching 6 expand that notion at that time. But for now, let's just use 1 Corinthians 7.23 to understand Paul's perspective. You were bought with a price do not become bondservants of men. So it makes perfect sense that he wouldn't say, I am a prisoner of Romans. No, he's not going to become a bondservant of men. He was bought with the price by Christ. Therefore, on uh, he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. What he is, he is for Christ. And when Paul mentions on behalf of Gentiles, He's not trying to transfer blame to the Gentiles for his imprisonment. He is legitimizing his position with the Gentile Ephesians. In verse 2, he assumes they have heard of his ministry to the Gentiles. We know in Acts 20.31 that he was in Ephesus for three years. So he was working with the people of Ephesus. And he assumes... He doesn't know this for a fact that, and, and you got to think that this letter is written to a region, not just the city of Ephesus. So in the region, as John Hansen did a good job of explaining in the introduction, in the region, he doesn't know that his reputation went out to all the people who might be reading this letter. So he's not going to tell them, I know you know about me. He's going to say, I assume you've probably heard about what I'm doing. And being clear about facts over assumptions or thoughts is another part of Paul's character that glorifies God. Paul doesn't present things as fact unless he has assurance that it is. We could take a lesson from that. And that 1 Corinthians 7.12 is a good example. Paul is talking about Christian in, in 1 Corinthians 7.12. He's talking about Christian principles of marriage when he clarifies what he is saying by stating, for the rest I say, I, not the Lord. And then he goes on uh, to make a statement about marriage. But that for the rest I say, I, not the Lord, 
I, not the Lord? Was Paul making the reader of his letter very aware that this part was not a direct revelation? Though it is nonetheless divinely inspired and worth paying attention to. But he, he has to be sure that to, to have his legitimacy clear, he can't take, make a claim of a revelation if he wasn't really a revelation. He has to make sure everybody can trust what he has to say or they won't trust what he's saying. He has to be trustworthy. As for Christians, it, it's fine to have a strong opinion. But don't present as fact what may not be. Paul doesn't use the world standards of facts to speak of something as fact. Paul doesn't, uh, for him, what comes from heaven is good to treat as fact. We kind of do the same thing. Uh, for example, I can say, Jesus is Lord. And I'll state that as a fact. It's a heavenly standard, not a worldly standard. Much of what's in this Bible, a lot of the world won't accept as fact. But if it's a stated principle, I'm going to state it as though it's fact. For heavenly purposes, this is going to be my guide, not the world. Okay? But I still want to be careful that what I read in here is that I'm taking what I know as fact, not as what my opinion is of it. If I'm 99.9% .9 sure of something, then I'll just state that. Hey, listen, I'm 99.9% sure, blah, blah, blah. But I've, I've taken out the part about saying, this is this. This is it. This is true. You can live on this. I can die on that hill. Much as Jesus is Lord, I would do. My kids will tell you, you know, I, I have a lot of sayings that I, I use, and I, I suppose the, the poor kids growing up, they, they had to put up with me repeating the same things a lot um, because I wanted them to know that these are things that I consider important to live by. And it's all I got for you. You know, I can't give you money, can't, can hardly clothe you. Kids didn't have shoes when we were younger, but oh, they did. They did. <laughs> we did okay. And I got these sayings that I would use all the time. Probably the majority of them come from my dad, and he would do the same thing for us. And one of those is leave room for wrong. Leave room for wrong. When you're saying something, are you so sure of it that you're stating it as fact, or are you leaving a little bit of room for, what if I'm wrong here? You know? And I used to be, oh my gosh, I, I was the most arrogant of young men. And I would say, listen, if I tell you I'm right, I'm right. And the principle really wasn't as bad as that sounds. That sounds arrogant, and therefore I think it is. So I don't do that anymore. The principle behind it was, listen, I've checked. What I'm telling you, I have thoroughly examined. I am ready to die on that hill. I'm ready to tell you this is fact. But I ruined the whole thing just by starting it out with, if I tell you I'm right, I'm right. Right off the bat, you're thinking, this guy is full of baloney. Yeah. <laughs> and, and rightfully, it, it, 
So a statement of fact is not going to be wrong. Think about that. A statement of fact is not going to be wrong. So stating something as fact is something to be done very, very carefully. Okay, verse 3 mentions that Paul was, has written briefly about the mystery being made known to him. And, and what he's talking about is chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Um, and it was the brief mention of uniting all things, including in heaven. And Kellen thoughtfully uh, presented breaking down the wall of division between Jews and Gentiles last week. He didn't break down the wall last week. Last week he presented that idea. And that's verse 15 of chapter 2. Uh, it's saying that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. And these are the things that Paul has written briefly. So it's not referring to some other mystery letter. It's simply the beginning of this letter. He is, he's giving us those clues that point to what he's about to reveal. And verse 4 and 5 bring out another characteristic of Paul. He leans on the past or history or, or more accurately, Scripture and the Spirit. And we can emulate that. We can depend on Scripture and the Spirit. We can lean on them heavily for trying to understand or even proclaim to other Christians things that are heavenly or divinely inspired. Jesus is Lord would be that example. And notice the importance of the, script, of the Spirit here. It is true that Scripture gives us the promise of, uh, to Abraham in Genesis 12 that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. Gentiles are part of the families of the earth. So that was foretold, but not in full revelation. And 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, 10 through 12 speaks to the prophets of old foretelling of Christ's salvation to all. And in 1 Peter, he had the opportunity of Jesus had come, and now this revelation is being made known. But he's pointing out that not everybody does know that. In fact, let me, let me turn to it and, and read, keeping in mind the Spirit's work in 1 Peter, first chapter, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They don't know yet. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, current yous, in the things that have... Uh, now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So it's not just the preaching of the gospel, it's also how the Spirit puts it in you, reveals what those words are being said to your heart so they can sink in fully. The full realization of who Christ is and that salvation would come to the Gentiles was made known to Paul through the Spirit. That's why he's, so, he's got this assurance. He says, I can tell you this revelation. It is made known to me by the Spirit. This came direct from heaven. 
And our understanding of Scripture is through the Spirit. Anything that I might say today that is accurate and sinks in and you believe about Christ is not going to be based on some fancy argument by me. It will be led by the Spirit and supported by Scripture. It's why so often you hear in our church prayers that cry out for the blessing of the Spirit for wisdom. I think I, I don't know whether I did. I I hope I mentioned the Spirit when I was praying to to reveal to, in fact I did, I do remember now, uh, reveal what's important out of this passage to the audience through the Spirit. Let the Spirit guide my tongue to what I tell you guys. And then let me leave a little bit of room for wrong when I'm announcing an opinion. So we have this transition where we're going to go from the legitimacy to the authority, and the transition is the revelation itself. The godly character of Paul Paul is on display for our gain. His character legitimizes what he's about to reveal. Now he can reveal it, and in a more specific way than what he wrote briefly about. What came prior to this was not necessarily clear, and it was about uniting Jews and Gentiles. In this announcement, he's talking straight to the readers of the letter, the Gentiles. So in this announcement, he's talking to Gentiles. He's not dismissing the Jews or shorting their involvement with the gospel. He is just focusing on his present audience. In Romans, he parallels the mutual involvement of Jews and Gentiles by Romans uh, 1.16, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who, is, who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And, and the Greek is basically Gentiles. Not basically, it is. So, Verse 6 again. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow partakers, or fellow, <laughs> excuse me, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, included with Jews, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Paul's authority is going to pick up on those last words through the gospel. So who's Paul to decide bringing? that he's going to be the one to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, he didn't decide it. God did. In verse 7, he was made a minister by a gift of God's grace and by the working of God's power. There's another characteristic. Paul used God's gifts for his assigned ministry. He uses his gifts. I could go on for a long time about gifts, there are multiple sermons and just talking about the gifts that we've got for heavenly purposes. I think of the unity of the band that was playing the wondrous cross. I don't know if you notice how the, the different elements really came together. Tim was strumming this deep sound, the bass came in, the drums came in, and I got to tell you, you guys did a fantastic job. That was glorious. And it was this unity and and this gift that you guys have for music that, that glorified God in front of all of us. It was fantastic, and I'm, I'm goose, 
pimply right now. I'm going to limit gifts to just three points. And they are on display in, uh, in Paul and seen in verse 7. First is that heavenly gifts are intended for heavenly purposes. Ephesians 1.5, according to the purpose of his will, or 1, 9, and 11, according to his purpose. It's all according to God's purpose that these gifts are handed out. Second is gifts are meant to be used. Romans 12.6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. Search for your gifts and use them. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what your gift is, and I don't know how it's supposed to be used, but it will be revealed to you. And if you have a gift, ask if you're using it for heavenly purposes or whether you're using it for selfish means. I pray that you'll use them for heavenly purposes. And thirdly, gifts are performed through God's power, not through your own. Zechariah 4, 6, very famous verse. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. There's other rules for gifts, other ways to find out what they are. But for our sake of the passage here today, those three are quality points, quality measurements. You could be looking at how you're using your gifts. I wish I, I, wish I had the gift of music. I, I don't. I, I wish I could sing like a bird. I can't. Apparently, I'm pretty good at selling toilets. <laughs> Made a career of it. 43 years of selling toilets. But at least they're not used. They were all new. And it, it's funny because when you're looking at your gifts, you've you got to retain the humility. But at the same time, accept what other people are telling you. And, and let it guide you to maybe this is a gift. You know, I would not say that I have the gift of teaching the word, and others might say I do. I try, I just, it's there, I don't have to write it, I just have to see what's there and present it. If that's a gift, then let me explore it deeper. Let me know the word better. Let me be able to find references and bring them that truly are meaningful to what the passage is talking about. And that's going to take some work. So a gift isn't something you're going to be so blessed with that you don't have to do anything. You have to participate. But at the same time, if I were to get up here and sing in these mics, it would not be glorifying to God. So understand what your gifts are and stay in your lane. And that brings out verse 8's characteristic of Paul, humility. He considers himself the least of the saints. Really? The least of the saints? I'd put him way up high. But he considers him the least of the saints. There's a claim of being the least of all who believe on Christ. That's where Paul sets himself. The thing is, all the saints, you and I alike, if you're a believer in Jesus, 
ought to have the same attitude. Leaving nobody in a first position. Maybe everybody is in second place and therefore everybody is the least, but you can't be number one. There is a number one, and that is God. It's the only one who belongs in the position. So keep him there and keep yourself in even a distant second place. You can't come anywhere near where God is. There's all kinds of things that will humble you. Like I say, I can't sing. I know that. Uh, Using the last notch of a size 32 belt. That's humbling. (laughs) There's plenty out there to humble. Life is going to humble us. But nothing's going to humble us more than realizing who the Lord is and how great He is and that we will never line up and that He loves us. That's humbling. In Matthew 18.4, Christ ended the disciples' argument of who is the greatest in the kingdom with the answer that, and pointing to a child, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. God loves the humble. I've heard it said that sin can be traced back to pride. All sin can be traced back to pride. And this is one of my leave room for wrong. I don't know if that's true. There could be something, and I'm not going to try and find an example right now of seemingly is a great sin that has nothing to do with pride. But it also does seem to make a lot of sense. Pride pride is ultimately putting yourself in first position with or above God. And was that not the essence of what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve? That they thought, God said this, but I'm thinking differently and I might be right, or I could, I must be right. They were convinced by Satan that they were as good as God. And they bought in, and that's what we're left with. So this, this whole pride thing is, does seem to, to have a lot of legitimacy that it could be the, sor- or, yeah, the, the primary source for all sin. Humility is huge in the Bible, and it's throughout the Bible. My concordance has 70 references to the specific word humble. 70 places in the Bible where they actually use the word, or God uses the word humble. So I'm going to pick three that I think somewhat sums up the sentiment. Psalm 18.27 For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. God saves people, but the arrogant, the haughty, he's going to bring them down. Psalm 149.4 For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Wow. And I'll turn to and read Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so 
all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Everything the Lord built, and what is he going to make sure we're paying attention to? He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's who God loves. We want to be that. All of creation. And it's the one who's humble that he points out, that's where I belong. And then, of course, not one of the three, but the ultimate act of humility was Jesus incarnate and suffered to the point of death, humbled to the point of death for the sake of others, as seen in Hebrews 2.9. I'll turn there and read it. You don't have to turn to it. It's not that long. But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, humbled. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death, so that by grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Humbled himself to the point of death, and not just for that to happen, but for everyone. Everyone in this room. Everyone on earth. Everyone who has ever lived or will live. That's who he humbled himself for. Not everybody will accept it, but it was everyone that he humbled himself for. And my purpose for referencing those last two scriptures, God's loving fondness of the humble and Christ's work on the cross, is that they dovetail with verses 9 through 12. The mystery had been hidden for ages by God, hidden from rulers and authorities in heavenly places, it is now being exposed through the church, realized through Jesus Christ. So what was to be known, what was, what was being searched for by the prophets of old is realized in Jesus Christ and now can be known in this revelation. And I can't hear you again. I guess once I wrote it in the beginning, I had to just keep thinking Am I presenting to you something that I believe or am I presenting something to you that the Bible is specifically saying? And I am not an authority on angels. There is biblical references to angels, so we can believe that angels exist. I can tell you that part. But whether that is who is being referenced to in this, where it says rulers and authorities in heavenly places, I don't know for sure but I think it is. I presume the angels that's mentioned in the Hebrew passage are who we're talking about. We've been honored and graced with priority over them. God is giving the gospel to the Gentiles and angels long to look at what in the world is God doing, but he's using us to show them. Remember that First Peter 1.12 that ends with things into which angels long to look. So we're an example. The last of Paul's spiritual character I'll point to is seen in the last verse, verse 13, in which we see him as an encourager. 
He asked that Ephesians believers not lose heart for his sake. And to help do so, Paul draws their attention to their glory. What's this glory? This glory is their inclusion. Now they can be saved. They're not people that are outside of who God is saving. They're included. That's their glory. Paul, in his encouragement, is saying that their glory, their inclusion in the redemption plan of the cross, that they have an assurance of their salvation. Paul's part of that plan, and so is the church. In Ephesus and elsewhere, that plan, the mystery revealed, the inclusion of Gentiles with Jews as one body is enough for Paul to be encouraged, and so should the Gentiles that are no longer excluded from being God's people. It kind of ends the same as he begins. He was a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. And now, so I am asking you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. So he's suffering as a prisoner, but don't lose heart over that suffering because it's for Christ and for your glory, your salvation, assured, stating it as fact. Didn't have to leave room for wrong. So we've got a couple of applications to go over. Um, And they can be pulled out of these elements of of Paul's Christian character, um, designed to emulate them to the best of our ability and beyond. And beyond, because our ability is going to come up short. But through Christ, we have the Spirit who's going to amplify our abilities. So it's beyond. None of Paul's character traits can't be shared in a Christian life. They all can. They're special because they can be used, as Paul does, for the sake of the gospel. But don't think that they're so special that only an apostle, only somebody like Paul could use them. Remember, Paul himself said he's the least of the saints. And you, fellow Christian, are a saint if you're a believer. Paul's opening verse addressed the saints of Ephesus as the faithful. That's the requirement to be a saint, the faithful. You have faith in Christ, you're a saint. Paul considers himself included among the saints, but the least of them. Now look, even as an unbeliever, these traits can be part of your character. But intentionally using them for the sake of the gospel isn't going to happen without the support of the Spirit. Intentionally using them for the sake of this gospel would require divine intervention. If you're not yet a believer in Christ, and I pray that you would consider it, it would be wise to listen to Paul's message and accept his character traits as those of somebody trustworthy. And therefore you can listen to what he has to say and prayerfully the Spirit would indwell you and enter the information into your heart, not just your mind.
But it's going to take more than Paul's words to cause belief in the saving power of Christ. It's going to take more than the words of the person who brought you here, if somebody did. It's going to take more than anything you can do. Only God can save. I can't promise what your conversion would exactly look like, but if you ask other people in this room who are believers, tell me about your conversion. What did it look like? If you ask 20 people, you're going to get 20 stories. But what's going to be consistent is that they were called by God. God saves, not man. Only God has the power to save. And accepting this passage as true would be encouraging that it doesn't take being born to a nationality, to a specific culture, to a family or a group. That's not what this passage is saying. This passage is being inclusive You don't have to be ready-made to believe in Christ. There's not a formula of who belongs to Christ and who doesn't other than his choosing. So if you want to believe on Christ, that's the first step is to accepting that you're going to agree with him. You want this. And it may be kind of weird for you. You're going to think, what do I got to do next? Well, I don't know that exact answer, but it it will include crying out to Christ. Tell him you want to believe, and then let him take control. And when that spirit is talking to you, if you're that unbeliever in the audience, listen. Ask others, what? This is what I'm getting. Does it make any sense to you? And others will be able to look at it and say, yeah, that's a little off base, but you're close. This is what it means to me. And if you're one of those people talking to another and says, this is what it means to me, clarify it. Leave room for wrong. Don't be stubborn. Don't be arrogant. Don't be thinking you've got all the answers because you can't save that person. God will save that person. Turn it over to God. Turn it over to the Spirit. Let the Spirit guide you in guiding them. Let Scripture guide you in guiding them. And the mystery revealed is that all people in faith can know that relationship with Christ. That's for the non-believer. For the believer, and a little bit of that was for the believer, but the believer, we have another responsibility regarding the display of what Paul calls our glory. That is, as Christ's church, we are to be examples to far more than we realize. Yes, to the world, in ways that are inviting for them to be part of the church. But think about these rulers and authorities and heavenly places, angels to be specific, are watching with great interest. 1 Peter 1.12, things as to which angels long to look. And 1 Timothy 5.21, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing with partiality. It matters what we're showing angels, heavenly creatures. They're longing to look for what we've got. So let's display it and let's glorify God in the process.
the character of Bible heroes and our character done right, done in Christ, is glorifying to God for all creation to see. As an example, done right. I think back to Emma Beglin a couple weeks ago, sharing the testimony of what she learned out at that cabin trip, studying the book of James, having faithful teachers. And she picked up that the tongue is a powerful tool. And the big deal is she heard it, the Spirit drove it into her heart, and she wants to change her life to include how that power is wielded. Somebody, I don't know how old Emma is anymore, 14, 15, is teaching a 65-year-old man things that, yeah, I knew it and I let it loose a little bit. I got to pull that in, recapture it, capture the passion by which she learned it. I pray that we can all do that, that we could let Scripture influence our character. I listed six characteristics of Paul seen in this passage. And that's hardly an exhaustive list. It didn't include the control of the tongue or love or those seen in the Beatitudes of Matthew 5. The Bible is rich in examples of character that is pleasing and glorifying to God. Immerse, immerse, yourself, immerse, immerse yourself in the word and pray for it to lead you to admirable, heavenly character. It will be to God's glory and testifying to all of creation. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you in our humility to ask that you would convict us of any pride that remains in our flesh so that we can return to you with all our heart. We trust you and the Bible, heavenly inspired and written by man, without error or conflict of itself. Lord, without your Spirit guiding us, we wouldn't know you or have the wisdom to even try to pray. We thank you for all we have in Christ, including the inclusion in your one new man church. We thank you for building our faith. We thank you for godly people of heavenly character you have put in our lives to teach us by your ways or of your ways by instruction and by action. We pray that your word and spirit would have great influence on us as they did with Paul. We are greatly blessed by you sending Brenda Allen whose mission is displaying godly character for the sake of your gospel. Holy Spirit, increase our blessing by guiding our conversations we share at our fellowship today. Be with us in all ways and guide us to be with you in all ways. Amen.